Arthur Penn on the critical beating Bonnie and Clyde took before being recognized as an American classic. William Friedkin on why he rates his box office bomb Sorcerer above The Exorcist and The French Connection. Italian great Bernardo Bertolucci of Last Tango in Paris fame on how critics misunderstood his incest melodrama Luna. I'm Lloyd Sachs, reviving my old Sachs and the Cinema segment on Chicago Radio to present a series of rare, intimate, never-before-heard conversations with great filmmakers. In these chats, recorded on my cassette recorder back in the 80s, you'll also hear Halloween creator John Carpenter on what it was like to be called a pornographer of violence, Monty Python alumnus Terry Gilliam on going rogue to get his version of Brazil shown in America, and French auteur Bertrand Tavernier on the French art of stealing from American classics. Plus, you'll hear Bill Forsyth on putting Scottish cinema on the map, and in a rare one-on-one interview, British legend Michael Powell on dealing with a studio that just didn't get The Red Shoes, his magnificent study of artistic obsession. You won't want to miss any of these wide-ranging, completely unscripted interviews in which eight great directors share personal truths and the secrets of their success. We continue our series with William Friedkin. It seems to be a basic truth these days that most commercially successful films lack artistic distinction and most artistic triumphs don't fare well at the box office or wherever they're showing. But back when Friedkin was in his prime, great directors like him scored on both sides of that street. That he was able to blend art and entertainment with movies as different as The Exorcist and The French Connection speaks to his remarkable range as a filmmaker and his consummate craft. In an ideal world, Freakin would have continued to reign supreme following The Exorcist, perhaps the spine-tinglingest movie ever made, and The French Connection, one of the most viscerally exciting pictures, but with a string of critical and commercial misfires and some brash behavior that alienated him in Hollywood, that didn't happen. When Freakin returned to his hometown of Chicago in 1985, he brought with him a film he hoped would put him back on track, To Live and Die in L.A., a chase thriller in the French Connection mode, starring William Peterson as a Secret Service agent out to get counterfeiter Willem Dafoe. In our chat, a relaxed and relatively soft-spoken Freakin cops to making bad artistic choices. He says he fucked up Deal of the Century, his 1983 satire starring Chevy Chase as an arms dealer. But he is equally outspoken in touting underappreciated classics of his, including the intense actioner Sorcerer, which he considers his best film. Here is William Friedkin talking about the inorganic nature of life in L.A. 
why Wim Wenders' Paris, Texas is a special film for him, his fondness for TV anthology series, and much more. I begin by asking him about his casting of Bill Peterson, a quintessential Chicago actor in such a quintessentially L.A. movie. I was just wondering as I watched this and I saw and heard Peterson, who has a kind of recognizable Chicago accent, at least to people from here, how much of it, I mean, whether that was not accidental that you chose a Chicago actor to kind of throw against this kind of L.A. sensibility or milieu or whatever you want to say. Lloyd, you know, L.A. is primarily a city of immigrants, you know, more so than... than, than than a place of of Angelinos, mm-hmm. you know, uh, all of the Secret Service agents, for example, get shunted around. Uh, either they fuck up badly at one post and offend some bureaucratic yeah. guy who's running mm-hmm. the thing, uh, and get transferred out, or they get promoted out, or an opening falls down in the Paris office, you know, or they get moved around a lot. It's a, it's a civil service job, and it's highly bureaucratic, whereas the FBI is not civil service. The Secret Service is that only branch of the federal government, law enforcement, that's, that's civil service as well. So there is a, a thick bureaucratic layer. There are agents in the Los Angeles Bureau who come from other places. So yeah, Peterson, I cast Peterson because I think he's the best young actor in America which you know better than me. I don't have to give you that song and dance. He's the best I've seen. I saw him do Belly of the Beast and Streetcar Named Desire. And it, his performance in Streetcar didn't know anything to uh, Brando's. It was completely fresh and original and contemporary. And I, I didn't even, as you know, scratch the surface of what this guy can do. He's... Plus, I cast him not only because he's got the acting credentials, but he has the physical ability to do those scenes convincingly. He has what Steve McQueen had, only McQueen was not a great actor. He was a a great, you know, film actor, but couldn't really act on a stage. Uh, Bill can do both, I think. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's not about conventional good looks. Nobody is conventionally good-looking. You know, Dustin Hoffman isn't conventionally good-looking, neither is Woody Allen, you know, neither was Clark Gable, you know, or Katherine Hepburn. All of the so-called stars are not, do not fit a mold. Peterson does not fit a mold. Yeah. You know, he's just a fine actor. And uh, other actors told me about Peterson. Gary Sinise was Mm -hmm. the guy who suggested Peterson. And... uh, then Peterson suggested Panko. That's, that's, that's interesting. Yeah. Now, Justin, uh, I mean, you've been out of here, like you said, for uh, for 20 years, but there's cert- there's still an element in the film of this out of uh, this guy who's obviously out of place, mm-hmm. who's in the where everybody else is kind of works by the rules and knows the whole scene. You know, there's just that element of kind of outside thing that I thought maybe you were relating to in some way. Oh, uh, yes. I mean, that's underneath. I mean, I don't like to push that up front. Mm. You know, I don't, uh, you're quite perceptive. and I, I don't talk about it much, you know. There is the element of the outsider. It is what I perceived in the Secret Service agents that I met. 
They're all outsiders. Few of them are native Los Angeles guys. Uh, the, and there's a certain wackiness. I mean, I met the Richard Chances and the John Vukovic's. Vukovic is Petovich, you know, mm -hmm. who, who get caught up in a vortex and go down. But the whole film is really about counterfeiting, counterfeit mm -hmm. relationships, things not being as they seem, things being inorganic. See, Los Angeles, the deeper ideas that I was working with, that I behind the facade of a cop movie, is the inorganic nature of life in Los Angeles, particularly the automobile. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, Frank Lloyd Wright, you know, spoke about the organic house and and something like the the Imperial Hotel in Tokyo, which withstood an earthquake because its foundations were 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 built to the to fit the contour of the land on which it was built. So the hotel lasted through an earthquake. Uh, riding around in automobiles and stuff, which is the L.A. lifestyle per se, uh, is inorganic. <coughs> you know, it's not what people do. You get crazy. You get isolated from other human yeah. beings. And you get crazy. All of your paranoia gets fed in your isolation in an automobile. Now that's something that I really feel out there, that I that I and that I felt since I moved out of Chicago, because I never really used to drive here. I either couldn't afford a car. I, I only had a car for the last two years I was here, and I didn't use it much because you know the subways were very accessible, or I would walk everywhere. But the film is dealing in another. It's dealing with counterfeit in terms of relationships and things not being what they seem, and uh, this inorganic nature of people and the thin line between the policeman and the criminal, mm -hmm. which is really what fascinates mm -hmm. me as a theme. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, every cop I've ever met who's any good is, is very close to criminal. You know, they think like criminals, they can pass, uh, a lot of their work is undercover, <laughs> and in order to pass undercover, they have to think like a criminal. Is your status as, uh, as, as the, the director of the French Connection, did that, you know, whenever you read about Elmore Leonard researching his cop novels, they're always swinging doors open for him because they, they know that he understands the police mentality or whatever. Does the French Connection work similarly for you? And yeah, it does, Lloyd. Uh, most cops who've seen it, I mean, and there are many, feel it's the best cop movie. Uh, not because it's so realistic, but because it gets to the, to the, to the re really to the heart of how they feel, you know, and what they think the pressures on them are from the bureaucracy, and how underappreciated they are. Uh, I feel that To Live and Die in L.A. I think is one of the best police movies ever made. I, I feel it about that. I, I honestly do. I, mm -hmm. I'm really proud of it. I think it really gets to the guts. In terms of an entertainment film, I mean, not in terms of a a piece of journalism or a documentary, uh, but in terms of dealing with something in a realistic <coughs> vein, uh, in a fictional medium, uh, I'm very happy with it. You know, it's flawed. Like the only film I've ever seen that is not flawed is Citizen Kane. And some people might argue that that's flawed. I, I wouldn't be one, but uh, um, well. The perception, one of the selling aspects of this seems to be, I mean, it seems to be almost presenting this as a kind of comeback film for you. I mean, do you That's see fair it as enough. such? <laughs> I mean, yeah. I, I have had three films that haven't been successful since The Exorcist. My last, well, uh, four. 
but have not really been rousing popular successes or critical. Mm -hmm. uh, so I'm not unmindful of that. You know, that's not something that I'm surprised about. So yeah, they're, they're, yeah, I think you're right. I hadn't thought about it, but I. Well, but is that, I mean, is, is that why you returned to this genre, or is it? No, I returned to the genre because this is the first story I found in this genre that I've wanted to do in 12 years, uh -huh. and I've always wanted to film. I, I'd like to film chases all the time. A, they're fun to do. Yeah. B, they're challenging. They're difficult. The two most difficult kinds of sequence to put on film are comedy and a chase. And the most difficult is a comic chase. <laughs> but uh, because you're dealing totally with timing and you cannot fuck around. You, there's no improvisation. You know, it has to be really planned out because it's dangerous to do a chase and you don't want anybody to get hurt, number one. Then it has to look dangerous but not be dangerous. Then you have to have in mind an overall tapestry. You've got to see the whole thing in your head while you're making it shot by shot or thread by thread. Mm. You've got to see the whole picture, which you don't necessarily have to see a whole film in your head while you're shooting it. You know, a film will take on a life of its own and some scenes can be cut or moved or transposed, but uh, in a chase, you've got to see the whole thing. Otherwise, you're going to waste a lot of time and endanger people's lives. And uh, so I haven't been able to think up a good chase sequence since the French Connection that I would want to shoot. And I haven't found a piece of material about law enforcement other than cruising that interested me on another level. Mm. Uh, you know, as you're well aware, I'm sure. But this is the first kind of French Connection genre film that I've wanted to make since then. And believe me, I've been looking. Mm -hmm. I've been looking, I've been talking to cops, I've made many abortive attempts at stories, not novels, but you know, real stories, try to adapt them. The thing I liked about this one was, was the plot. It is a, it, most films today are, are plotless, really. Now is it the obvious, I'm sure you've been asked this a lot, is it, or maybe not, but the more obvious thing, I mean, when you're putting together your name and the French Connection is selling this a lot, were people asking for two uh, better-known actors uh, in the leads? You or mean is that, that a, is that a factor anymore? No. Uh, give no. me, uh, give me, uh, you know, Roy Scheider, or give me somebody else. Now, who, who's in E.T.? You know. Well, well no, there obviously there uh, are examples of that. But in this case, I'm just wondering if that was at all. I would. Because I think it works better this way with these guys than it would have with. More established, uh, yeah. Or, yeah, of course, that's what I think. That's why I did it this way. Uh, the thing is, <coughs> there's a very similitude that comes from the audience's unfamiliarity with these actors. Now, whether they'll be able to carry that over into other films if they become successful is another question. I mean, audiences w did not know Gene Hackman or Roy that's Scheider. That's true. They didn't know Roy Scheider at all, mm -hmm. and they knew Gene Hackman as a supporting actor you know, never a lead. Uh, audiences didn't know Ellen Burstyn before The Exorcist. You know, critics knew her, uh, other actors knew her as doing good work. Audiences didn't know her. So she carried a lot of believability into the room with her. Now, I tried to cast this film as best I could. I, I wait, cast the picture for four months, you know, and uh, 
I wouldn't change one person in the cast. If you said now you could get Redford to play Chance, I wouldn't want to do it. Yeah. It would be a different, it would be a Redford vehicle. <coughs> uh, I like Redford, by the way. I like his mm -hmm. work. Uh, but I mean, I wanted to get people who were fresh, because that's one of the things I like to do. I also like to work with veteran actors, but it depends really on, on a part-by-part on -part basis. And the philosophy of this picture was, let's get a very similitude, a realistic foundation where the audience is not familiar with the characters, but believe them. Uh, I hope that that works, you know, I hope, hope that comes across. But audiences don't care today who's the star of a picture, unless it's Clint Eastwood or Hoffman or Barbara Streisand. Yeah, that's true, absolutely. Well, two things that immediately come to mind in just in terms of doing this. A, the look of the film. You had probably the best cinematographer going, as far as I'm concerned. Right, uh, he's, he's really incredible. Um, the art design, just the whole art design, the look of the film, and also the music. Mm -hmm. and, and as I say this, I realize that, that I mean, you have really had a lot of success in, in musically, in, in the music that's run through your stuff. I mean, when I think of cruising, I immediately think of that real tough kind of uh, uh, Mick DeVille, mm -hmm. John Hyatt kind of thing, which worked really well. With The Exorcist, you plucked Michael Oldfield out of somewhere. Um, I guess there have been other examples, Tangerine too. Dream. Tangerine Dream, right. Which became a staple in films yeah. after Yeah, that. I mean, that really started it. Um, I don't know, just wherever you want to go with that. But start with the look. With um... Well, I, you know, I was familiar with some of the films that Robbie Mueller had made with Vim Vendors. But the thing that really nailed it for me was Paris, Texas. That is an incredible piece of photography, I think. Don't you? Yeah. And I, when I saw that, I said, this is what I want to do with To Live and Die in L.A. I don't want it to have the hard edge of the French Connection. And for that same reason, I asked a woman to be the production designer. I didn't want, you know, a man's input in every detail of the picture. Hmm. I had a lot of women work on this film, especially the designers. They were all women. The, the costumes, the sets, the, uh, the uh, set decoration. I had a lot of women on the picture because I wanted that input. Mueller's work, I think, I agree with you, he is one of the best. He and Storero, I think, are the best around. Mueller works simply, uh, unpretentiously, uh, and he'll work forever to get, in a, to get it right. And, and he's fast. And you can communicate with him in cinematic terms. You're not talking to a guy about coverage or uh, uh, stock approach to filmmaking. He likes to get a whole scene in one frame, if he can, without a lot of cuts. And I wanted to do that in this picture. Mm -hmm. I wanted to find a visual metaphor as often as possible that would hold, where the shot would hold, and where there'd be a lot of information in the frame. And very often he would achieve a kind of lighting that would spotlight a character uh, sort of uh, imperceptibly within a scene, without you even realizing who the character you're supposed to be looking at. Yeah. He, would, he would... Yeah, yeah, I, 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 and I can think of one specific case, but go ahead. I, I mean, I have the image in my head of, of one instance where that really worked well. There's a light on Vukovic at the very end of the film, yeah. the kind of light that he's in. 
is is really a, a kind of revelatory light that that changes Vukovic. Uh, there are other places where you have, for example, uh, a character in the foreground, but the background figure is the person whose attention you're drawn to, and that was all consciously designed. We did very little cutting within a scene, very little. I would try to only cut to go to another scene. I would try to keep everything in the same frame, and that meant that Robbie could take his time and light a scene so to give it a certain look and not have to worry about the light changing for the reverse mm -hmm. angle, because we did everything on location. Mm -hmm. There are no sets. It was all actual locations. When I met him, I, he said to me, you know, I've never made a film like this. You know, I've never done a chase scene, and I've never really done a, a film about cops or something. And I said, well, I'd, I've never made a film like Paris, Texas, so we, we could probably learn a lot from each other, because I think there's a way to blend the two styles. To live and die in L.A., I mean, the feel of it somehow reminds me, I mean, people will make French connection comparisons, needless to say. It seems to me to have not much to do with that film, and in a way, the, the whole feel of it reminds me more of Sorcerer, in terms of the sensuality of a lot of the images and the kind of dripping, you know, sense of, of doom or whatever that... Yeah, you know, fate. Up. Um, I think you're right. Sorcerer is the favorite film of mine. Is it? Made, of mine, yeah. Uh -huh. Not my favorite film. Uh, yeah, of but yours. I, of mine, yeah. I, I think it's the most fully realized picture I've made. Um, it came closest to what I had in mind at the beginning. And... And then, of course, because it wasn't a success and because the critics really savaged it in the time, you know, I love it a lot. You know, it's like, a, it's like the, the runt of the litter. Mm -hmm. Well, where would you put Deal of the Century? Then? It does, Deal of the Century doesn't work. Uh -huh. You know, I fucked it up. Uh, it was a great script, a great script about a very important subject. And I worked just as hard as that as I uh -huh. ever did on any film, but I, I didn't bring it off. You know, I, I just, I lost my touch with it. Whatever my touch was, if I ever had a touch, I lost it on that picture. I didn't realize it at the time. I do now. It doesn't make it. it, it it's an attempt to deal with an incredibly serious subject in, in humorous terms, and it isn't funny. The music, I had heard uh, uh, Wang Chung's first album, Points on the Curve, and it struck me as being both lyrically and musically, a few light years ahead of other things that I'd been hearing. It was very serious kind of contemporary music. I went to them when I had the script. I, I gave them a script and I told them the story. I told them what I was trying to accomplish. And then I had them go into a studio in London and record. They wrote and recorded without seeing the picture. They, they did not see the film. They wrote the music based on their impressions of what oh. I told them and the script. And they sent, mailed me about an hour's worth of music that I then pulled apart and put where I thought it would work. And I used, you know, quite a bit of it. And, but I used it in places where, that they had no idea where I'd use it. Then they came into Los Angeles to, to see how it was laid in and how it was working. And in, they were very, very pleased. 
but they were quite surprised by some of the choices that I had made. And uh, they thought that some of the music that they had written for one section was used somewhere else, but, but they liked it very much. Meanwhile, I, I said to them, don't ever worry about commercial a commercial score, and don't write a title song. Just don't even think about a title song, uh, because you can't use this title in a lyric, and uh, you can't use French Connection in a lyric. You couldn't use The Exorcist in a lyric, and it would only be corny, and let's not bother. And so they didn't. And then they came to Los Angeles and saw the film and what I'd done with it. And while they were there at that time, I'd finished the picture. And I was in final cut. And they wrote a title song. They did a demo of a title song because the record company said it would be really good if we had a title song, don't you think? And I said, not for me. You know, I don't care. I'm not selling records. Uh, well, they, they said, what do you think? I didn't like the demo. I didn't like the demo and I didn't think it would work. And they said, well, there's, we got these two hot producers called Swain and Jolly, who are hot record producers in England, and Wang Chung has always wanted to work with them. And uh, they like the song, and so we, Geffen, are going to finance it and produce it and let you hear it. And it's your choice. If you like it, uh, we'll, we really love it and we'll get behind it. So I said, fine. And then I heard the arrangement. I heard the arrangement and the final mix, and I loved it. I just loved it. I thought it was great. And I put it in the picture three days before I, I finished mixing the film. And then I did a video of it for them. Oh, you did? Which has gone into what they call power rotation on MTV, <laughs> which means it's like a Springsteen record or a Michael Jackson yeah, record. So that's your first video. No, I did one with Laura Branigan uh -huh. on self-control. I, I never saw that one. Yeah, I got to number two, uh -huh. the video, and uh, that was number one in Europe. I just liked the song. I, I like this, not so much, but her idea of what she thought the song was about. So I did a video, because I want to work in video. I want to get into this field, and, uh, you know, because it is the coming field. It's going to replace film, I think, within ten years. I see you have a, uh, a Twilight Zone. Comes on October 18th. Look at it, if you get a chance. It's uh -huh. great. It's great. I'm really pleased with it. It's called Nightcrawlers. Now, what, what, what are the, just essentially, obviously it's a whole different medium. What adjustments did you have to make? For, None. Or what, just you shot it as... It's just a 20-minute film. Uh -huh. It's short. Now, I would love to be able to make short films, you, but there's no audience for short films. Uh, theaters won't play them anymore. Yeah. Uh, you can run it at a short film festival or something, you know, uh, but there's no real audience in a theater other than film buffs, except now along comes this anthology series on television. And they say, well, the producer of The Twilight Zone sent me 20 scripts by really fine writers, like Ray Bradbury and Stephen King and Harlan Ellison, good writers in that genre, whose work that I read, you know, and said, here's your choice of scripts. I know you'd never do anything for television, but uh, uh, if you would care to, we'd like you to, you know, direct one of these for us. And because this guy, the producer, was a guy who came into the film business because of Sorcerer. It was his favorite film, and it inspired him to get in the film business. He got into television, and he created Simon and & Simon, and then they made him the producer of The Twilight Zone. 
and I, he wrote <coughs> the script that I chose to do, The Nightcrawlers, because it's just so good. And where else can you do it? Mm-hmm. You can't do it on the stage, and you, could, you can't do it in a theater. No one would see it. Now, you know, a minimum of 20 million people will see it, and it's short form. It's a short form picture that uh, I love. I'm very, very pleased with it and proud of it, and it's scary as hell. You know, I mean, it's a real frightening piece that I'll still be amazed if CBS doesn't chop it behind my back now that I'm away. And if they ever put it on, uh, the, you know, the way I gave it to them, I'll be surprised. Now, what is it? I mean, obviously, the speed with which you video can be, although a lot of directors, I guess these days, use video techniques and even record the stuff on video cameras just to look at. Yes. Um, but what is it that excites you so much in terms of being the wave of what's coming? Well, first of all, the technology. You can, you can achieve optical effects, and you can even achieve the color timing of an image <coughs> faster than you can in a laboratory. <coughs> you, you, for example, on this film, To Live and Die, it took me about three months to get the film timed to my satisfaction in the lab. Mm-hmm. You think the photography looks pretty good, but you should have seen it, the first print from the lab. It was dreadful. It was all over the place. <coughs> because... Film processing technology is in the dark ages still. They can mass produce faster, but they can't time a picture uh, with any accuracy quickly. Uh, Whereas on video, you can time and tune your image to your satisfaction in seconds instead of weeks or months. That's one thing. The other thing is music video appeals to me because it's a free-form medium. You're not limited by the structure of a plot or a story. You're not even limited by the structure of the song. You know, you can go out and film imagery that does not relate to the words, whereas it's very difficult to do that in an American film that has a plot. You very often find that you have to photograph two people talking, you know? Whereas in a music video, you've got the freedom to create imagery that... Uh, only needs to relate in a kind of a visceral sense to the to the lyric, so there's a great freedom uh, in in the the way it's done. There's a great improvement in the technology. You know, it's a, a powerful improvement in the technology over film. It's light years ahead of film in terms of its portability, accessibility, the ability to achieve optical effects. It's all, you know, years ahead of motion picture technique. And I believe that within 10 years, they'll be projecting tapes in theaters yeah, instead well, of films. That's what they're saying, yeah. You've been listening to a conversation with the great director, William Friedkin. Thanks to Rick Riggs and Handwritten Studios for the production work and Jeff Bradfield for the music, In our next podcast, I'll chat with Terry Gilliam, once and perhaps future Monty Python member and the director of films including Brazil. Join me. I'm Lloyd Sachs.